Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot The Wasteland by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 Martin Buber called himself a religious anthropologist. People were always trying to categorize Martin Buber. Is he a theologian? Is he a poet? Is he a... uh, uh, this or that, and he called himself a religious anthropologist. And in a way, Eliot could be called a religious anthropologist in that the problem of life comes down to the issue of love. And what he's looking at, to, to repeat the story a little bit, is the relationship of sexual attraction to the awakening to the deeper mysteries of love and whether or not it's capable of awakening us to those deeper mysteries in the modern context. That is to say, if it is uninformed by a cultural influence. Everything I've been repeating so much, but I just have to go back and say this. Moses said, choose you therefore life. And what we found over and over and over again is that the spontaneous attempt to choose life is often disastrous. Uh, We need to have some cultural resource to help us make that choice because what seems like life in the first instance may in fact be the road to its opposite. So it is with sexual attraction as Eliot is analyzing it in the first part of this century. Can it still lead us to, to the deeper mystery of love? We could think of sexual attraction as, as being desire in all of its forms, in all of the implications of that word. Which desire, if left to its own resources, uh, might come to the conclusion that what it is is a, is a need to satisfy the desire immediately and that only there's nothing more than the in other words the desire is like an itch and all you need to do is scratch it and understood that way it becomes lust that is to say if it's uninformed by some cultural or instructional system that would tell us about what a mystery we we're we're touching when that begins to happen you know it might easily degenerate into lust and that is its only object is to is to satisfy the immediate physical desire. Whereas, if it's informed by a deeper wisdom, it can develop into something called longing. So in this little mental diagram I'm, I have in my head, there is desire which could go into, into lust, pure and simple, or it could go into longing. Now, longing will have, in many cases, most cases, the consummation, let's say in the sexual realm, the consummation as a goal, but not as the only goal. And it will understand that the process is a much more mysterious one. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing. Not the satisfying of the longing, but the longing itself. The longing is, in fact, the first experience of that which is longed for. Again, Simon Vile said uh, the, the longing for the lover is the longing for the incarnation, whether we know it or not. The spiritual resources can encourage us to be attentive to these deeper implications of this desire and therefore make it an agent in redemption. And without those resources, the desire has a tendency to degenerate into something mechanical and lifeless. What Eliot has done is he has provided a set of eyes through which to see the modern condition, which are in some way immune 
to all of the all of the obfuscation that is the condition that the rest of us are in. And the, these set of eyes belong to Tiresias. And Tiresias has been both man and woman. In a way, he is the symbol of one who has seen it from both sides. And so we're asked in the middle of the poem to begin to look through the eyes of Tiresias because we can't see it through our own eyes. The title of section three is The Fire Sermon, which is a reference to Buddha's, one of Buddha's most famous sermons, which we'll speak of at the very end of this section. In Buddha's fire sermon, fire is the image for, for lust and desirousness and, and appetite and so on. And Buddha's message to his audience is that we have to be detached from these desires and lusts. Otherwise, because they are fire, otherwise they will burn us, they will consume us in their fire, and we will be tormented by them. In a way, it's a way of speaking, in the Buddhist idiom, a way of speaking of a hell that comes into being by the misapplication of human desire, which is exactly what Dante's talking about in Canto V of the Inferno, and in many other places in his writing. The irony is, there's a lot of irony, of course, in Eliot. The irony is that the world that Eliot is depicting is a world where these desires are running roughshod over everything, but so much so that they have lost any real hold on us, so that, so that the problem in the modern world is not uh, attachment, but detachment. Emotional detachment. In the, in the face of these, of these desires and lusts. And that's the sickness that Eliot is analyzing. We are not, it's not as though it's causing us to be too attached. It's, ca- it's, it's breaking up attachment. It's dissolving attachment. We're all becoming alienated from one another. And even the awesome powers of sexual attraction can't bring us together again. Let me read to you something Alan Tate uh, said about the overall strategy of the poem. He said, discredited forms of the historic cultures emerge only to be stifled. The poem is at once their vindication and the recognition of their defeat. When he says discredited forms of the historic cultures, that that means all of the cultural resources. So he says they emerge only to be stifled. The poem is at once their vindication and the recognition of their defeat. They are defeated, in fact, as a politician may be defeated by a popular vote. Somebody says, who's here in favor of the Ten Commandments? Boo. Or who's here in favor of some more, a deeper, more mysterious sense of what all this is about? Get out of here. So they're defeated as a politician might be defeated by a popular vote. Tate goes on to say, but their vindication consists in the critical irony that their subordinate position cast upon the modern world. In other words, we have before us the modern world in all of its arrogance, on whom assurance sits like a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire, and the traditions on which it now looks condescendingly. And then we're back out in the audience, as, as in a Shakespearean play, laughing up our sleeve at the ridiculousness of that. It begins, the river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink into the wet bank. The wind crosses the browned land unheard. The nymphs are departed. 
Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. The river's tent is broken. At the literal level, that means everything the, this section of the poem has to do with the Thames River, just about everything. We're really going to be on the banks of the Thames River wondering about life. The river's tent is broken is a way of saying that the, that the canopy of the overarching trees, uh, the, the leaves have fallen. And so the, the, the arching trees, are partially overarching the Thames River, uh, has gone away. So the river's tent is broken. There's a, lot to way, a, lot, a number of ways you could say that. And uh, the first one that would come to your mind is not this one. The river's tent is broken. The Hebrew word which we translate tabernacle is the word is tra translates tent. Tent is a synonym for tabernacle. I think right in that first phrase, he, t he, he, he tells us something about the overall problem. The river is life. The river is the process of life in a person, in a, in a culture, in a cosmos. The river has always been the symbol for the process of life. And when you say the river's tent is broken, you speak of how it has, of the secularization of the mystery of life. It's no longer a tabernacled mystery. The tent is broken. And now it's just ongoingness. Ongoingness. There will be time, there will be time. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. All of that. It's not the sacred processing. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink into the wet bank. You get a resistance here. The leaves are showing a resistance. Clutching. There's a kind of desperation. And sinking into the wet bank. Not wanting to be buried. Not wanting to die. Once the river's tent is broken, you see... Death becomes purely and simply the, the enemy of life. And so there's that resistance. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. Now, we could diagram this sentence would be helpful. It has a subject, which is the wind, which in this poem, I think, always is panuma, the spirit, ruah, the Hebrew ruah, the breath. The wind, and the sentence has a verb, the verb is crosses. Crosses. The wind crosses, in all the implications of that word, the brown land, unheard. This famous passage in the uh, prophet Amos, Yahweh says, See what days are coming, it is the Lord Yahweh who speaks. Days when I will bring famine on the country, a famine not of bread, a drought not of water, but of hearing the word of Yahweh. They will stagger from sea to sea, wander from north to east, seeking the word of Yahweh and failing to find it. So the wind crosses the browned land unheard. Before we go to this, these next lines, let me read to you the echo that they are meant to set off for us. It's Edmund Spencer's Prothalamion, which is a um, song written, a poem written uh, prior to a wedding celebration. And Prothalamion is, is the celebration, the preparation for, the celebratory preparation for a great double wedding. And uh, it, it has all of the, of the uh, mystery and wonder and glory and light and beauty 
and it's on the banks of the Thames. So uh, the bringing together of new life. Now remember, one of the major themes of this poem is that of the tempest in which the, the, the reestablishment of the world depends on these two, this young man and young woman, uh, Ferdinand and Miranda, meeting under exactly the right circumstances so that they discover love in its fullness. And that discovery will regenerate the world. So our hope is that two people can be brought together who will rediscover the mystery of love, and from their rediscovery of it, the whole world will be renewed. That's the hope. And, and Spencer's Prothalamion conveys something of that hope. I'll just read the first part of the... It's a quite a long poem. I'll just read the first part. Calm was the day, and through the trembling air sweet-breathing zephyrs did softly play, a gentle spirit that lightly did delay hot titan's beams, which then did glisten fair, when I, whom sullen care through discontent of my long fruitless stay in prince's court, and expectation vain of idle hopes, which still do fly away like empty shadows, did afflict my brain, walked forth, I is the subject of that sentence, walked forth to ease my pain along the shore of silver-streaming Thames, whose ruddy bank, the which his river hymns, was painted all with variable flowers, and all the meads adorned with dainty gems, fit to deck maidens' bowers and crown their paramours against the bridal day, which is not long. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. There, in a meadow by the river's side, a flock of nymphs I chanced to espy, all lovely daughters of the flood thereby, with goodly greenish locks all loose untied, as each had been a bride, and so on and so forth. Beautiful preparation for marriage. And each of the stanzas ends with, Sweet Tim's run softly till I end my song. And it's a beautiful celebration of meaningful discovery of love through the love of man and woman. And so Eliot chooses that as his echo structure for the beginning of section three. The river's tent is broken. So he puts all of this in the context of the breaking down of the uh, spiritual meaning of life. The river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink into the wet bank. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. The nymphs are departed. Now here's the first echo of Spencer. Spencer says the nymphs are, are dancing around on the banks of the river, getting ready for the wedding, leading up to the wedding, looking like brides themselves. He says the nymphs are departed. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. Okay, so the first thing to think is, well, you see, the problem is that this is wintertime. It's brown land, the leaves, are, leaves have fallen, uh, the, the, the nymphs are departed, so that the so that the problem will be overcome in the spring. See, that's it. We return to a cyclical cosmos when, when the one that is the real pil pilgrimage one, which has has a journey involved. Well, in the spring, there will be a renewal, uh, and there is a kind of renewal in the spring. The question is whether or not it produces anything genuinely transformative, or whether it's simply a, a little cyclical turn of the wheel. Maybe in the spring it'll be better. The river bears no empty bottles, sandwich papers, silk handkerchiefs, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimony of summer nights. The nymphs are departed. 
That's a way of letting us know. Just in case you think this is going to be overcome by a simple seasonal change, guess again. Because the difference between now and summer is that. Now it's sort of muddy and the leaves are sinking into the soil, and in the summertime there's a lot of litter around. And that's the only substantive difference. The nymphs are departed, and their friends, the loiter loitering heirs of city directors, departed, have left no addresses. By the waters of Liman I sat down and wept. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. Sweet Thames, run softly, for I speak not loud nor long. Now, Limans is another name for Lake Geneva. And Elliot went and sat by Lake Geneva during his nervous breakdown, what's, what's generally called his nervous breakdown. And there he wrote part of the wasteland. And the ancient name for Lake Geneva is Limon. By the waters of Limon, I sat down and wept. Limon, Liman in English is an ancient uh, term which means lover. In the religious, the uh, Oxford English Dictionary gives three meanings for it. It means sweetheart or lover. The second meaning in the, when it's used in a religious context is that it means Christ or the Virgin Mary. And in its uh, profane sense, it means the partner in adultery or unlawful sexual liaison. So it has all of those meanings to it. Eliot happened on to a fabulous coincidence here and took advantage of it. He could have said, I sat by Lake Geneva, you see, and wept. But he said, by the waters of Limon, I sat down and wept because it has to do with a personal experience and it has to do with the issue of love in all of its octaves. And I think it may be also be a way of saying that this nervous breakdown of his had to do as much with his discovery of the condition of his culture as with his own, at that time, fragile psychological state. The real meaning of this, of course, comes out when you when you read its echo. This is the second major echo structure. The first being Spencer, and this is the and this is Psalm 137, the relevant portion of which goes like this: By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. This is when Israel is in Babylonian captivity. And by the rivers of Babylon, they sat down and wept, remembering Zion, remembering Jerusalem, remembering what it was like before this terrible disaster befell the culture. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Keep liars in mind when we get to mandolins today. By the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song 
in a pagan land. Isn't that an amazing echo to this whole poem? Eliot, who, who knew by this time, I think, that his calling was to make a major poetic contribution to his culture, and also understood that he was in a place that was alien to, incapable of receiving a major poetic contribution to the culture. He's in Babylon, and he's, in a sense, hanging up his lyre, being called on, his captors are calling on him to make, to make merry, to entertain. Why don't you entertain us? In the, way, in the sense that the Babylonians said, well, those are wonderful round dances. Do some of those round dances. We're, we're broad-minded. We're cosmopolitan. We can do a Jewish round dance. Do us a round dance. And the psalmist says, you see, that round dance is part of the cosmos you destroyed. How can we do the round dance? Or whatever it was. I'm just trying to convey the feeling of Psalm 137. It's a tremendous psalm. And, and that Eliot would choose that as part of his echo for this part. It's just astounding. What do you do in Babylon? You do what Eliot did. You sit down and weep. And for him, it took the form of a nervous breakdown. What we call a nervous breakdown, whatever that is. See? That's, that's what Paul had on the road to Damascus. Eliot's was a, was a little more gradual. The, the revelation of what is can have that effect. So by the waters of Liman, I sat down and wept. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. Sweet Thames, run softly, for I speak not loud nor long. In Andrew Marvell's comic poem to my coy mistress, somewhat comic anyway, uh, he says, well, we could, this dilly-dallying around, we could uh, tolerate that. Uh, that's postponing the two of us consummating this love of ours. He said, we could, we could tolerate that, uh, except that, uh, you know, the, we're not getting any younger. And the, the phrase that refers to that is, but at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. Namely, mortality. We don't have forever. Uh, death's going to come along, and then we won't have a chance to consummate this love of ours. This voice in this poem says, at my, But at my back, in a cold blast, all through here you see the wind is alien. Once we've rejected the spirit, the wind becomes an alien force. At my back, in a cold blast, I hear the rattle of the bone and chuckle spread from ear to ear. And all of this now is going to be an echo of Rat's Alley where the dead men lost their bones in section two. But notice, at his back he hears not death coming on, but death having come. Already having come. And that changes the dynamic considerably. Because it's no longer something you can run from. It's now something you have to experience, bury the dead, and pray for new life. A rat crept softly through the vegetation, dragging its slimy belly on the bank, while I was fishing in the dull, in the dull canal on a winter evening round behind the gas house, musing upon the king my brother's wreck and on the king my father's death before him. Here's where Eliot most explicitly overlays the two major themes of the poem. 
the Fisher King in the Grail story, whose woundedness uh, is connected to the disaster of the cultural disaster, which is the wasteland, and who can only and who cannot over cannot be cured of his wound, and can, and will not die of his wound, and can only marginally escape the torture of the wound by fishing. So the Fisher King, and the other one is Ferdinand, who is wandering around the island of the Tempest, Shakespeare's Tempest, thinking that his father is dead, weeping for the king my father's rack, Ferdinand said. So the two of them are now overlay. Uh, Both are in a situation that seems disastrous, and the question is, can it be redeemed? Can a pure fool come along and ask the right question? Can Ferdinand and Miranda come together in such a way as to rediscover love? Both of those are, it's a kind of an overlay. But notice where the Fisher King is fishing. First of all, we get a, a hint of where he's fishing because we see a rat dragging its slimy belly through the vegetation. While I was fishing in a dull canal on a winter evening round behind the gas house. Now, in the, in the Grail story, the Fisher King is fishing in the river. And in the Tempest, the source of rebirth is the sea. Ariel comes along and tells Ferdinand, uh, five, full fathom five thy father lie, undergoing a sea change. Uh, so the river and the sea, sources of life, a dying that comes back to life, a bab- the baptismal waters, you see. Madame Sosostra said, fear death by water. That happens there. But here, it's a stagnant trench round behind the gas house. Now, the river's tent may be broken, but we have to get our energy somewhere. And what we now have, and Elliot Elliot begins to look at at industrialization as a metaphor for the problem. But the question is a question of energy. How do we generate energy in a world which has lost the traditional sources? I, I brought something from Henry Adams largely because this reminded me of his chapter in Education of Henry Adams where he talks about the, the Virgin and the Dynamo. Uh, he goes to the World's Fair in, in 1895 or whenever it was, Chicago, and, and he looks at all these dynamos and uh, the generation of electricity, and he starts to think, uh, it makes him think about the Virgin in medieval Europe. And he says, he says to himself, uh, he's a historian, he says, future historians look back on this, you know, and they will, they'll have to decide which of the two of these uh, produce the most energy. And uh, he said, I just wonder what they'll, how they'll conclude it, he said. He says at one place, he speaks of himself in this, in, in this autobiography in the third person, he says, as he grew accustomed to the great gallery of machines, he began to feel the 40-foot dynamos as a moral force, much as the early Christians felt the cross. And shortly thereafter, he gets into this discussion of the virgin and the dynamo. So Elliot is talking about fishing in the dull canal on a winter evening round behind the gas house. The source of energy has changed. It's all part of the secularization of the world. And of course, to fish is a perfect Christian symbol for the combination of what in the Reformation came to be the great discussion about works and grace. Fishing is a wonderful symbol for 
the right combination of works and grace. White bodies naked on the low, damp ground, and bones cast in a little low, dry garret, rattled by the rat's foot only year to year. Sex and death, sometimes hard to distinguish in this poem. White bodies naked on the low, damp ground. We don't know whether they're living and copulating or, or dead and not. Uh, we just know that there are white bodies naked on the low, damp ground. And bones cast in a little low, dry garret, rattled by the rat's foot only year to year. The burial of the dead has not taken place. You can't have resurrection until you have burial. And so in place of burying the dead and, and uh, risking resurrection, we just rattled the bones year to year. Come springtime, see, it's like the image of the river. Come springtime, we just go down to the banks of the Thames and rattle the bones. And then we sit it out for the rest of the year, and then comes next springtime, we go down and rattle the bones again. So it's that cyclical process from year to year. But that's not resurrection. This is from John Day's poem, Parliament of, the Be of Parliament of Bees. When of the sudden listening you shall hear a noise of, of horns and hunting, which shall bring Acteon to Diana in the spring, where all shall see her naked skin. So it's a story of Acteon uh, the hunter discovering the goddess Diana, the huntress, uh, bathing with her maidens and seeing her in all her naked beauty, stunned by it, and she chagrined, changes him into a stag, and his hunting hounds devour him, chase him down and devour him. So it's a story of a tremendous awakening desire which becomes self-consuming destroys himself in, in the awakening and desire he's not prepared for. But it's an awesome story, compared with which is Eliot. But at my back, from time to time, I hear the sound of horns and motors, honk, honk, which shall bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter's in the spring. Now, Mrs. Porter's is a house of ill repute, and Sweeney is a haunter of houses of ill repute. And again, it's turning the wheel. It's the springtime ritual that turns out to be not a regeneration after all. One that turns out to be barren and impotent and meaningless. It's a scratching of the itch, but nothing transformative. It will simply bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter's in the spring. Oh, the moon shone bright on Mrs. Porter and on her daughter. They washed their feet in soda water which is an Australian uh, barracks song, which is quite bawdy. I, ha I wasn't able to put my hands on the, on the original verses. I wish I had. Uh, I have a footnote to the effect that what they washed in soda water was not their feet. Uh, but in any case, Elliot picks up on a Australian, bawdy Australian marching song or soldier song. Do I dare to try to do this French? I, I, German is bad enough. French is impossible. I'm among friends, I'll try. Et au savoir d'enfants, chantant de la coupole. Oh, those children's voices singing from the dome or the cupola. The last line in a Verlaine poem entitled Parseval, a, a, a sonnet, in which, uh, which is, of course, Parseval is the, uh, plays the key role in the 
in the Grail story. But this is the preparation for the rebirth of the society. It is on the eve of that he hears the children singing from the cathedral. What we've just heard is the soldier's barracks song about ha-ha, Mrs. Porter washing in soda water, she and her daughter washing in soda water. And then we get this Verlaine line about hearing the children's voices coming from the cathedral. And Verlaine's poem implies the, the imminent rediscovery of meaning and life and the restoration of life to the, to the wasteland. Uh, but there's no, nothing of that implied here. This is just Sweeney going to Mrs. Porter in the spring. Twit, 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 jug, 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 so rudely forth, Teru. Remember what he had said about, talked about the painting over the mantle, which was the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forth, namely rape. We're talking about rape. And again, we're not rape in the literal sense of forcing the sexual act on an unwilling victim, but in the emotional sense of sharing the sexual act with an indifferent partner. Twit, 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 jug, 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 so rudely for Teru. Teru is also a, uh, a way of indicating a bird song, but here it's an echo of Tyrius, who was the rapist in the Philomel story. So it's the, the poem is saying we're talking about rape. We're talking about uh, that kind of destruction within the erotic awakening. There are two little vignettes here, one of them very brief, just these few lines, and then one of them a good deal longer, which are designed to show us the problem. Uh, not to just say it in prose, what the problem is, but to, to give, let us feel the problem. Unreal city, under the brown fog of a winter noon, Mr. Eugenides, the Smyrna merchant, unshaven, with a pocket full of currants, CIF London documents at sight, asked me in demotic French to luncheon at the Cannon Street Hotel, followed by a weekend at the Metropole. Mr. Eugenides, his name means uh, uh, well-born. It means one who is uh, uniquely capable of producing superior offspring. The eugenic. Mr. Eugenides, uniquely capable of producing superior offspring. And that's the problem, see, is, is regeneration. And he's a Smyrna merchant. I'll talk about that in a minute. Unshaven with a pocket full of currents, CIF London documents at sight. In Jesse Weston's discussion of the death and resurrection mystery cult that blended with some of the Christian things in the Middle Ages, she talks about the Addis tradition. Uh, Addis was a, a dying and rising uh, deity, uh, which spread from Syria all around in the West. She says, quote, the medium of transmission appears to have been threefold. First, commercial, through the medium of Syrian merchants, as ardently religious as practically businesslike. The Syrians introduced their native deities wherever they penetrated, 
founding their chapels at the same time as their counting houses. So the Smyrna merchant here, Smyrna, not, not Assyrian, but a Smyrna. Smyrna means myrrh. It's the Greek word for myrrh, meaning the embalming fluid. So this is uh, someone who is coming, selling a death and resurrection cult that is essentially embalming fluid. Circuit all the, all the hermeneutics here. With a pocket full of currants, CIF London documents the site, dried currants are the opposite of the vines and grapes of the Bacchanalian ritual. These are cur dried currants. That's what's happened to it. It's now dried currants, and it is placed in the pocket. There's an association between a degenerated erotic awakening and commercial life. And that's echoed in the next line, which is these currants are CIF London documents at site. CIF is a contract where the seller pays the cost insurance and freight until the buyer receives, has the documents in hand, at which time the buyer repays cost insurance and freight. So it, it's a it's a tit-for-tat kind of operation, implication being this is a homosexual, this is the offering of a homosexual liaison. Uh, luncheon at the Cannon Street Hotel followed by a weekend at the Metropole, which is, I'll pay for lunch, I'll pay for the weekend, uh, you respond, you pay by uh, responding with service. That's what's going on. And the beautiful image of it is with a pocket full of currants, CIF London documented site. And Metropole means the central city, the chief city. And this whole section begins with the words unreal city. This is just a picture of one of the symptoms of the overall collapse. And of course, Mr. Eugenides is a drowned Phoenician sailor and a one-eyed merchant and all of the other people in the poem as well. At the violet hour, when the eyes and back turn upward from the death, when the human engine waits like a taxi, throbbing, waiting, I, Tiresias, though blind, throbbing between two lives, an old man with wrinkled female breast, can see. And we'll go on with that in a minute. First of all, Tiresias. The story of Tiresias, which uh, Eliot uh, obliges us by, by uh, putting Ovid's version of it in his notes, but he doesn't bother to translate it from Latin. The story is that Trissy is walking through the woods. He sees two snakes copulating, and he hits them with a stick, and he, is he himself then is changed into a woman. He lives as a woman for seven years. He's going through the woods again. He sees two snakes copulating. He hits them with a stick and is changed back into a man. So that when Jupiter and Juno argue, king of the gods and queen of the gods, argue over the question of who has most pleasure in the sexual act, the man or the woman, they decide that only Tiresias will be able to settle the argument because he's been, been eat. So they call Tiresias and ask him to settle the argument. And he says the woman has more pleasure in the sexual act. Juno is offended by that, having lost the argument. I, I don't know why she should be offended, but anyway, she lost the argument. So she makes him blind. And um, Jupiter, who can't change what another god has done, but can only try to make up for it, gives him prophetic powers. So Tiresias then goes through life as a blind prophet. But what's important here is at the violet hour, 
at the violet hour, near sunset, when it's neither day nor night. It's somewhere in between. And that's the moment this whole poem is talking about. In a way, that's the moment when we are most anxious, when it's neither this nor that. And we can't stand being in that liminal state, that middle place. And the, and the fact is we're stuck in that middle place, neither dead nor alive, neither day nor night, the, the bodies of the dead unburied kind of thing, unresolved middle place. In the violet hour, Tiresias can see. And Eliot says what he sees is the substance of the poem. And what he sees is what is. He sees what nobody else can see. And he's going to let us in on what he sees. But he says it's at that hour when the human engine waits like a taxi throbbing, waiting. That middle place where we are so anxious. We don't want to be in that middle place. To be in the day is okay. To be in the night is okay. But to be in that middle place is, is, is troubling. So like the human engine waits like a taxi, throbbing, waiting, throbbing, the motor running in a taxi, you see, waiting for the next fare, waiting for the next person to come along to pay the fare and be taken something. The image of the human condition is in the middle, in the liminal state, throbbing, motor running, waiting to... Uh, to be hired to take somebody someplace else, to go someplace else for pay, waiting for somebody to come in and say, uh, take me to Heathrow, uh, or whatever, throbbing. That, by the way, that's the place where the woman in, the, in part two uh, was when she said to her husband, what shall I do now? What shall we do tomorrow? What shall we ever do? Like a taxi throbbing, waiting. At the violet hour, I, Tiresias, though blind, throbbing between two lives, old man with wrinkled female breasts, can see at the violet hour, the evening hour, that strives homeward and brings the sailor home from sea. Now, there's an echo, uh, uh, perhaps, of the, uh, the Odyssey story of Tiresias. Tiresias tells Odysseus how to get not only physically home, but how to get home in a more profound way. And he says to him this, when you get back to Ithaca and settle up with the, with the uh, suitors, you take an oar, which is the symbol of your life, because he has been a, a wanderer who has, who has, who, whose symbol is the oar, the sailor. You take the oar, and you go inland until somebody thinks it's a winnowing fan. And they say to you, what's that winnowing fan on your shoulder? Because they're so far from the sea, they don't even know what it means. And there you plant that oar, and you do the proper ritual ceremony and you come back to Ithaca. And the, the text says, the Fitzgerald translation, Tiresias saying to Odysseus, Then a sea-born death, soft as this hand of mist, will come upon you. When you are wearied out with rich old age, your country folk in blessed peace around you. It looks forward to a moment of death, in which death is a peaceful experience, and the culmination of life. But the instruction Tiresias gives is how to lay down that oar, to bring the sailor home from sea in a more profound way. And the next line is, the typist home at tea time. 
And Eliot has chosen a, as an example of the modern condition the typist because she is typical of what he wants to... It's that simple. She's the type he's using. So he's just using the typist. Anybody will do. He could take anybody. He's using the typist. Home at tea time, the violet hour, clears her breakfast, lights her stove, and lays out food in tin. Out of the window perilously spread her drying combinations touched by the sun's last rays. Her underwear hanging on the line. But she is, like others in this poem, the lady of situation. And her drying combinations touched by the sun's last rays. You get the emotional impact of the various double meanings on that. Her underwear on the line represents her drying combination touched by the sun's last rays. On the divan are piled at night her bed, stockings, slippers, camisoles, and stays. I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dugs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. I, too, awaited the expected guest. And what we need at this point is Ferdinand and Miranda to meet as they do in the Tempest and to discover in each other's presence the mystery of love and the mystery of life and the regeneration of the world. That's what we, that's what's needed. So here he comes. He, the young man carbuncular, arrives, the pimply-faced one. A small house agent's clerk with one bold stare, the one-eyed merchant, one bold stare, one of the low on whom assurance sits like a, as a silk hat on a Bradford million. Alan Tate says the scene that follows is a masterpiece, quote, perhaps the most profound vision that we have of a modern man. Well, if that's true, we're in trouble. Elizabeth Drew said this scene is a ghastly parody of the fertility ritual. One of the law on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. The Bradford millionaires were, in Bradford there were these arms factories where people had made lots of money during World War I producing arms. In other words, it's an image of the, the nouveau riche who are rich because of their exploitation of a disastrous situation. So you get the parallel? They are, they have profited from what is a disastrous situation. And that's, this man in his own silly little way is going to profit from the spiritual disaster of the modern world. And then what follows is, believe it or not, a sonnet. And this is wonderful. Because sonnets are most, most of the time used, they were invented uh, to uh, tell the story of love. And uh, so what we have here is the sonnet poem. The time is now propitious, as he guesses. The meal is ended. She is bored and tired. See, bored and tired. Remember Sweeney, the woman in the whorehouse, falls off his knees and yawns? The meal is ended, she is bored and tired, endeavors to engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once. Assaults is an interesting verb here. This is a, this is a rape, although nobody, uh, nobody seems to mind. He assaults at once, exploring hands encounter no defense. 
His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. And I, Tiresias, have foresuffered all enacted on this same divan or bed. I who sat by Thebes below the wall and walked among the lowest of the dead. Bestows one final patronizing kiss and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. Now, just to share with you a little funny thing, this poem occurred to me this week is like, remember those little things? I think they still sell them. We used to have them as kids. It's the thing, it's an eight ball. And on the bottom of it is a, is, is a glass, see-through glass, and you turn it up, and these little cubes or whatever they are kind of float to the surface, and they answer your question. So you, you ask it a question, and you turn it up, and this little thing floats to the surface, and there's the answer to your question. It occurred to me this poem is, is like that, 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 you, that you turn it over, and you just wait for it to rise up and meet you from the page. But something like that happened here, because... Sonnets are supposed to end with cup, rhyming couplets. So I'll let's see if it works for you. This sonnet is supposed to end with a rhyming couplet, but it doesn't. Now see if the rhyme, as you turn over your eight ball, rises to the surface. Bestows one final patronizing kiss and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. See what rises to rhyme with kiss. You see, yet this poem, by the way, had a had a mother and a and a midwife. The midwife was uh, the mother was Elliot. The midwife was Ezra Pound. It turns out that there were two lines inserted here, which Ezra Pound convinced Elliot to eliminate, which were these: "And at the corner where the stable is, delays only to urinate and spit." In my imagination, I have uh, Pound saying to Elliot, "Look, Tom, if you play it right, you can drop those two lines." And slowly but surely, the word piss will arise in the mind of your reader, <laughs> which is either evidence of the fact that I am I am uncommonly in touch with the mind that produced this poem, or that my mind is so, uh, you know, warped. <laughs> but in any case, I offer it to you as what's really important is the word unlit, because you see, he gropes his way down the stairs and the stairs and the world and his heart and everything else remains unlit and that's the disaster though this is not ferdinand and miranda meeting and restoring the world in love this is wandering away and the world is still unlit and then we go back to her flat she turns and looks a moment in the glass hardly aware of her departed lover her brain allows one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done, and I'm glad it's over. It's scratching the itch. When lovely woman stoops to folly, and now that's a that's a line from uh, Goldsmith's play, The Vicar of Wakefield, in which Olivia is is uh, seduced by Squire Thornbill. She is so chagrined at having been seduced that she contemplates suicide. It is such a disaster, such a violation, that she contemplates suicide. And the soliloquy in which we, she contemplates suicide has this line, when lovely woman stoops to folly, and she begins to contemplate suicide. Eliot has this line end in the word and, increasing our the tension about what's coming next. 
character. When lovely woman stoops to folly and paces about her room again alone, she smooths her hair with automatic hands and puts a record on the gramophone. Now those lines, what, do you, what else do you need to say about the modern condition? Smooths her hair with automatic hand and puts a record on the gramophone. And the, now the gramophone will play the role of, of muffling any awareness of what has gone on, of dulling any recognition of what has actually happened. And then we get what we've all been waiting for. We only get it for a moment, and then it's gone again. But what we've what we've been waiting for is a respite from all of this, some relief. And it begins with the line quoted, this music crept by me upon the water. It picks up on the gramophone, you see, the, the mechanical music. But this is another music he begins to hear. This music crept by me upon the water and along the strand up Queen Victoria Street. Oh, city, city, I can sometimes hear beside a public bar in Lower Thames Street the pleasant whining of a mandolin and a clatter and a chatter from within where fishmen lounge at noon, where the walls of Magnus Martyr hold inexplicable splendor of Ionian white and gold. Not an ounce of irony in, no, in those lines. Remember in that Psalm 137, the psalmist said, we hung up our lives because we were in a pagan Babylonian play. None of it was understood. And Eliot, having walked around this unreal city, happens upon a place where it is still happening. The music is still being made. And he says, oh, city, city, one city capitalized, the other not, as though he's talking about the Augustinian city of God and city of man. He finds them somehow commingled in this little fishing area, Billingsgate, little fishing area in London, around near where the uh, uh, where the Church of Magnus Martyr is, and he has another experience. To get what this other experience is, and and uh, and what it meant to him, we have to go to that line. This music crept by me upon the waters. It's Ferdinand once again, wandering around, thinking that his father is dead, sitting on a bank. Weeping again, the king, my father's wrath, this music crept by me upon the water. It's the music that Ariel is making. Allaying both their fury, the waters, crept by me upon the waters, allaying both their fury and my passion with its sweet air. Thence I have followed it, or it hath drawn me, rather, but tis gone. No, it begins again. And then Ariel comes in singing that song about Full Fathom Five, Thy Father Lies, undergoing a sea change into something rich and strange. So Ferdinand hears this plaintive music that promises rebirth, and he follows it, and then he loses it. And then he hears it again, and he follows it, or it draws him on. And likewise, Eliot walking not up where St. Mary Woolmoss is in the, 
financial district where the nine o'clock bell is just tells the bankers when to go to work. That's dead. That's the, that's the part of the church that is dead. But down in this fishing area, fishing district, he experiences, in a sense, he becomes nostalgic for something he's never known. He experiences the church in the sense of a community, genuine human community, in touch with one another, engaged in the business of life and also in a spiritually significant communion. All of it centered at the Church of Magnus Martyr, where the walls of Magnus Martyr, the verb is, hold. See? He found a little piece of Zion that was still in place. You know, Psalm 137 says, How can we sing in Babylon? We're weeping by the waters of Babylon, remembering Zion. And Eliot finds a little piece of Zion still in place, a little piece of the true church where the city of God and the city of man participate in one another. But it's just a respite. The river sweats oil and tar, the barges. Now we're on the Thames River, see, again. But it's the symbol for the river of life. The river sweats oil and tar, the barges. The verb is important, drift. With the turning tide, red sails wide to leeward, swing with a heavy spar. The barges wash drifting logs down Greenwich Reach, past the Isle of Dogs. Wailala, Lila. Wailala, Lila, which is a, from the, the Rhine daughters in Wagner's Ring, who are in possession of the Rhine gold, which is the fertility, image of fertility. And in the story, they lose the Rhine gold and bemoan the loss of the Rhine gold and then recover it again. Eliot introduces that to, rec- to, to say we've lost the Rhine gold. The fertility is lost. We cannot rediscover, regenerate, discover resurrection. And then the second of these. This is the modern world. The river sweats oil and tar. Now we go back to the Elizabethan world. Elizabeth and Lester. This is the Earl of Leicester, Elizabeth's close friend and suitor. Elizabeth and Leicester, beating oars, the stern was formed a gilded shell, red and gold the brisk swell rippled both shores, southwest wind carried downstream the peal of bells, white towers. Now most read this and say, this is Eliot saying, it's terrible today and it was better back then. But I don't think so, and I think the first giveaway, well, there's some very strong ones here in a minute, but the first giveaway, if you don't read any further, is the word white tower. This is passing the tower on the river. Uh, But in those towers, Elizabeth's mother was executed at the command of Elizabeth's father. Anne Boleyn, accused of adultery, was executed, held in the tower and executed. And Lester, who was was, uh, Robert Dudley, who became Earl of Leicester, was a suitor of Elizabeth after his wife had fallen from the set of stairs and killed and, and died, and the rumor spread that she had been pushed so that Dudley could openly suit for the hand of Elizabeth and never came to, to marriage. But there is this innuendo, and there were rumors rippling both shores, that is to say, both shores of the channel, 
about what was going on between Lester and Elizabeth. So a triangle again. The triangle in Elizabeth, the generation before Elizabeth, resulted in a death in the tower. And the triangle in Elizabeth's time resulted in a, in a suspicious death falling from the stairs. Then if you go back, for, then, after this, what's supposed to be a beautiful rendition of how things were, it says, Wa-la-la, Lila. Wa-la-la-la, Lila-la. Same, same lament, in a way. When you go back and read, it says, a gilded shell. A little giveaway in the, in the, as you go through the story. A gilded shell carried downstream the peal of bells, white tower. Now we're going to get the Tim's daughter. The three Tim's daughters. You have to remember the the nymphs have departed. The Spencerian uh, Prothalamion is not happening on the banks of the Thames. Something else is happening on the Thames River, and we get three versions of it. Each from the from the mouth of the woman involved in the casual sexual liaison. Trams and dusty trees. Highbury bore me, Richmond and Kew undid me. By Richmond, coming down the river in the canoe, by Richmond I raised my knees, supine on the floor of a narrow canoe. Pretty explicit. Second one is, my feet are at Moorgate. Now, Moorgate is, Highbury is a upper middle class district. Moorgate is more of a slum. My feet are at Moorgate and my heart under my feet. After the event, he wept. He promised a new start. I made no comment. What should I resent? And the third one, on Margate Sand, I can connect nothing with nothing. This is the complete, what Girard calls the complete crisis of distinction. On Margate Sand, I can connect nothing with nothing. The broken fingernails of dirty hand is all she remembers of her lovemaking session. My people, humble people who expect nothing. La, la. Now, la, la is an echo of why la, 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 of the, of the Rhine daughters lamenting the, the theft of the fertility, Rheingold. But it is also, perhaps, the last phrase at the end of this side of the gramophone record. See, it's when the music stops. See, when the music stops. La, 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 la. And then it's time to pay the piper, so to speak. The music stops. And then all of those, all of that recognition, which the music was designed to suppress, begins to come to the surface. To Carthage, then I came. When the music stopped, to Carthage, then I came. Here's what Augustine says in his confession. To Carthage, then I came, where a cauldron of unholy loves sang all about my ears. I was not, see, la, la. I was not able to love yet, but I loved loving. And with secret love, I hated myself for not loving. Sought for something to love, 
in love with loving, hating security, and hating a path that was not beset with snares. To Carthage then I came, burning, 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 burning. And that's from the Buddha's fire sermon. O Lord, thou pluckest me out. O Lord, thou pluckest burning. Augustine said, I entangle my steps with these outward beauties, but thou, O Lord, pluckest me out. Thou pluckest me out. 